And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand and the ushers will see that you have a Bible so that you can follow along with us in our Bible study tonight. Lord willing, we will be completing the book of Galatians. Oh no, we're finishing it. I didn't say anything about the length of time that we'll be here. I just said we're finishing it. (laughs) Unless the rapture comes, you know. (laughs) How blessed would that be? He said, doesn't he say that blessed are they that when he comes, he finds his servants watching. You know, how much more watching can there be the people seeking his face when he blows the trumpet? Galatians chapter 6. We're going to pick up in verse 11. And we'll finish the book tonight. If we were to scan the chronicles of human history and examine the most impacting events to change the course of men's lives, among them would be the writing of the Galatian letter at the hand of the Apostle Paul. There are few theological concepts, or even for that matter, portions of scripture that have had the effect upon the world or upon the church that Galatians has. We've already talked of how Galatians was the spark that began the Protestant Reformation, the the roots and foundation of really us even having a Bible in our our lap to study that's translated into our language. The concepts of grace that we find in Galatians, it's those that inspired the great awakenings of the American continent, you know, in years past. And really, the root of any blessing in any Christian's life, it starts with the embracing of the truths that are found in this short epistle. And it's my desire that tonight, as we conclude our study of this book to somewhat encapsulate or summarize, if you would, exactly what the Holy Spirit would intend this epistle to accomplish within our lives. I'm not talking about the theology, you know, the information, the doctrine, and the things that we we learned kind of intellectually. I'm not talking about that so much. But in experience and in our Christian lives, what is it that God would have us to come away with? In a sense, you know, we talk of the Word of God as being the sword of the Spirit. But that sword of the Spirit is so often used as a scalpel, a surgeon's scalpel, as God just opens up our heart and He makes those adjustments and those changes within us to to magnify our Christian experience and magnify His presence within our lives. So what is it that God would have us to understand as we walk away from this study of this book? What does it mean, what does it look like when a Christian grasps Galatians? As Paul concludes in these short eight verses, he breaks it down into three sections. In verses 11 through 13, he gives to us a summary of the information that he gave to them. Then, in verses 14 and 15, he gives a summary of the application, or how it applies And then in verses 16 through 18, he gives a summary of the impartation or the implementation, the do part of it, is our response, if you would. So we begin in verse 11, a summary of the information. 
He begins by drawing attention to the importance or the severity of the message. He says, you see how large a letter I have written unto you with mine own hand. Now, most scholars agree that at the time Paul was writing this letter, he was nearly blind. He he speaks of and makes allusion to that in other portions of Scripture, and this being one of them clearly where he talks about the size of the letters, and, and, and you know the, the language in the Greek is with how large letters. So it isn't that it was a long letter or a, a large thing. It was actually literally large in its you know, scripting because of the eyesight of the Apostle Paul, you know. And so he draws that to their attention in this. And in most instances, when Paul would write to a group of people, he would use a scribe. We read in various epistles of, you know, different people that penned Paul's letters. That as he would speak, somebody would be recording the words that he said. Because it was difficult for him in that condition. But in this instance, as he wrote to the Galatian church, having no scribe, evidently, and being so impressed by the need to express these things to these Christians, he took the pen in hand himself, and who knows how many you know, pieces of papyrus he had to use to get this down, no matter how difficult it was for him to see what he was doing, he took it in hand himself to write this letter to them. He brings to their attention the visible evidence of his concern for their estate. And then he summarizes, verse 12, he says, As many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. Those that would desire to make, he says, a fair show in the flesh. That is, to impress you, the fair show in the flesh, is to impress you by their outward appearance. They're putting on a show. It's something for you to see, a facade. They're putting on something and giving the appearance of being something, even though what might be going on internally may be altogether different than what the outward picture is portraying. And Paul says that those that desire to make a fair show, a hypocritical demonstration, they are the ones that will constrain you to be circumcised. The reason that they're compelling you to be circumcised is not because they're concerned about your spiritual state or the quality of your standing before Almighty God, but they're doing it because they want to validate themselves and propagate their religious system. It has nothing to do with their well-being. Now contrast that with Paul, who barely being able to see, takes the pen in his own hand and writes this large letter just for no other reason than because he does care about their estate. And then he says, only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. He's already made the case that to embrace Jesus Christ, in all of his fullness and in all of its meaning, is to also shed or get rid of religion and ritual and everything that's outward. To embrace Christ means to shed the religious covering or forsake it. To embrace Christ means that your relationship with God is something that's going on internally. 
There's a work taking place underneath in the invisible place where God is taking up his residence within the heart. And when that's happening in the life of a Christian, there's no need for any external religious show to put on to make like something else. Because you have the reality. Paul said to the Corinthians, we have this treasure in earthen vessels or jars of clay. The glory is not of us. We're just a clay pot, frail, weak, nothing much to look at or talk about. But the light that's inside, that's the glory and the power and the weight of what we bear. But for those that don't have Christ, all they have is religious exteriors, rites and rituals, circumcision, religious service and duties. It's all external. And once you shed the external, because you have the reality, the light and the life of Christ within you, you open yourself up for the persecution to come from the religious side of things. Because now you're no longer relying upon those duties and those rituals. In a sense, you've taken yourself out of the race. Who can be the most spiritual? Who can obtain the most sacraments? Who can attend the most studies? Who can quote the most scripture? None of that matters anymore. And once that's no longer the issue, then you can be persecuted by those that are. They could say, look, they call themselves spiritual. He's going around starting churches, this apostle. But yet, what can he boast of? Does he have a certificate showing that he was sent? Did he institute the sacraments of circumcision and all that we do here as Jews showing how spiritual we are? And the result of Paul giving away the reality is that it opened him to persecution. And he draws that again to their attention, lest they should suffer persecution also for the cross of Christ. He goes on and he says, For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised. Why? That they might glory in your flesh. Those that hold their religion in exterior facades or appearances do so because they do not have the internal reality. But those religious people, by compelling people like the Galatians to embark upon circumcision in the rituals of Judaism, it makes them feel validated in their religion. And this is the summary of Paul's whole message. We've rehashed that every week as we've gone. The Judaizers that came to the Galatians and said, yeah, grace through faith, but you must also be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And so Paul, in the summary of what he's writing to them, reminds them and he says, listen, it isn't about those that compel you to be circumcised. The religious Jews were influencing the Christianity of the Galatian believers, and Paul is writing to call them out. We know that. And so Paul summarizes in his conclusion, but he moves on now to summarize the application of his message. That is, how is it that Paul encouraged these Christians to respond to what he was telling them? That's always what it means to apply the word. You know, how do we respond to what it is that we're hearing. And Paul goes on in verse 14, and he says, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. God forbid that I should glory, Paul would say, after 
just speaking of how the Judaizers, the legalists, the legalizers, how did they glory? Their glory was in religious duty, in their knowledge, in their sacraments, in their rituals, in how many converts they had. But Paul's glory, he says, is completely and singularly bound up in one thing, the cross of Jesus Christ. That's my glory, says Paul. And what do you mean when you say that, Paul, when you say that your glory is in the cross of Christ? I mean, that could mean so many different things, Paul. What do you mean by that? Four things quickly. Number one, it represents the one who took his place in judgment. See, the Jews depended upon themselves to attain a righteous standing before God. But for Paul, he had no righteous standing before God. It was Jesus Christ. Christ, who took his place in judgment, whose righteousness was given to Paul freely. And thus the cross for Paul spoke of the one who took his place in judgment. Second of all, as he said to them in chapter 5, that the cross for him represents the death of the self-life. The putting away of the deeds of the body, the reckoning of the flesh, the old man to be dead. And so that, number three, the resurrection of Jesus Christ might be alive in him. That's the whole of Paul's message to the Galatians. That it's Jesus who died to save you and to free you from the law. That in Jesus, the old man is dead because of sin, but the new man is righteousness because of Christ. That Jesus is the one who now lives in you. He summed it up in chapter 2, verse 20. He said, for I am crucified with Christ, nailed to his cross. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. It isn't I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And that's what the cross represented to Paul. He said, I am crucified with him. It is as though I died there. The Adam nature within me, the selfish man, the old man that I once was, is nailed there to the cross and it's gone, it's dead. It stands as a monument forever sealed in time of what I once was, but I am no longer. Because I still yet live, but nevertheless, it's not me that lives but it's Jesus Christ alive in me. And the life that I'm living, I'm living by faith in the Son of God. He loved me. He gave himself for me. And that is what Paul is speaking to them here and saying, that is my glory. That's my life. It's Jesus Christ that he's alive in me. My life, my salvation, my glory is Jesus Christ living in and through me. And that is what makes us Christians Not anything that we do outwardly. Rituals or sacraments or Bible studies or service or words that we say or bumper stickers we put on our car, t-shirts we wear, styles that we embrace, things we do and don't do anymore. None of that matters. What makes us Christians is, is Jesus Christ resurrected and living in us? Spiritual life, victory, and fruit Come as Jesus Christ lives in us. It comes from nothing else. He goes on to say, By whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. And here we see the fourth thing that the cross of Christ represents for Paul. And that is that the cross is this in Paul's life. 
It is the cutoff point between his old life, his old man, his flesh, and his new life in the new man in Jesus Christ. The world is crucified unto me and I unto it. There stands between me and the world that once was a cross. And there I stand nailed to it with Christ my Savior. And I'm no longer alive to it, to its passions, to its ways, to its drives, to its desires. But I am now alive only in Christ. It's all gone. Then in verse 15 he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision avails anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Notice that he uses the word in Christ Jesus there. And I don't know what translation of the Bible you're reading, but I hope it says in. I hope it doesn't say with, or because of, or along with, or any other word other than in, because that word in is the crux of Paul's message, and it's the crux of the faith that you and I are proclaiming and receiving tonight as we seek the Lord. That it's in Christ Jesus. Now, why? Why is that so critical, so important that it's in? Here's why. I was reading last night a passage in the book of Numbers. And you'll understand why uh, a few minutes from now, why I was reading in Numbers. But, but, but something happened while I was reading Numbers yesterday. It actually goes back in time, you know, probably about two years to a conversation I was having with an aunt of mine. She's a Christian. She's a believer. And she asked me, and she said, do you read the Old Testament? And I said, yeah, of course. Sure, I read the Old Testament. I teach it. You know, yeah. And she goes, really? She goes, I have such a hard time with it. She said, it just seems like it's a different God. It just seems like it's a totally different... And I was like, you're crazy, you know? And I didn't say that, but I was just like, of course it's one God, you know? But last night, while I was reading Numbers, I read the account of a young man who had a Jewish mother and an Egyptian father. And in the camp with the children of Israel, he blasphemed, he cursed, and he used the Lord's name in vain in some way. And it was told to Moses that he did it, and Moses didn't know what to do, so Moses went and he had this young man arrested while he could seek God's heart out and get counsel from God as to how to deal with him. In the sentence, not coming from Moses, not coming from the elders of Israel, but coming directly from the mouth of the Lord, was kill him. And I read it and I went, oh, goodness, really? And then I began to think about the other scripture, not too far from that place there in Numbers, where on the Sabbath day, a man was seen gathering sticks. On a day when no work was to be done, this man was out and he was gathering sticks. And they said, he's not supposed to be doing that. Moses, what do we do? Moses says, I don't want to ask God. And so Moses went to the Lord and he said, Lord, what do we do? He's gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Came back from the mouth of the Lord. Kill him. Goodness. And and for the first time, I began to understand what it was that my aunt was asking me those years ago when she said, do you read the Old Testament? And a certain struggle began to even happen in my own heart as I said, well, I know that he's the same God. It's not a different God between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He didn't change his mind. He one day just go, you know what, that was a little rough. 
I was a new parent. I didn't really know what I was doing. And you know what? I'm sending Jesus because I changed my mind. And, and I just, no, no, no. That's not what happened. Because the Bible says that God is holy and God himself declares, I am the Lord and I do not change. And so I'm sitting here and I'm going, well, kill him. I sin worse than that every day. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that I, you know, I I gather sticks on the Sabbath. I split wood on the Sabbath. I mean, I, I, I do worse things than that. And yet my Bible tells me that he takes delight in me. My Bible tells me that he loves me, that he cares for me, that his thoughts towards me are for peace and not for evil, that there, and, and, and the struggle is going on. Well, wait a minute, if he said, kill this guy, but yet he loves me, what gives? Where is it? And I began to just meditate, to think this through. And this is what I realized. And this is why I'm talking about this, why this is so important. Because listen, I want you to understand something. God is not pleased with you. And he's not pleased with me. Now, I see some of you getting your tomatoes and your rocks out. I see Bobby getting a little nervous there in the back, you know. No, 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 there's no asterisks. God is not pleased with you. There is enough sin that goes on in the chambers of your mind before you even roll out of bed to bring upon you a death sentence every single day. And based upon what you are and who you are, the sentence of God every time would be, kill him. But because God does not desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. God sent his son, Jesus. And listen, I'm going to tell you something. There is only one man, one man, one man ever that God was pleased with. And it was Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Not once, but twice he said it. At the beginning of his ministry and then towards the end. The seal of God's approval of his life was magnified in that he died for the sin of mankind, but that he rose again on the third day, proving that God was well pleased with his son, Jesus. Not one other man, not Moses, not Daniel, not Joshua, not Peter or Paul, not one other man ever did God look at and say, I am well pleased. The sentence of death was upon all of them. And God is not pleased with any of us. But listen, he is pleased with Jesus Christ. And when a man or a woman hears the call of Christ, when he says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you'll find rest for your soul. When a person hears the knock upon their heart of Jesus saying, let me in, and they open up to him and they say, okay, Jesus, I am yours. At that point, something happens. You, your old man, the one who gathers sticks on the Sabbath, the one who blasphemes having a fight in the camp, the one who defiles and breaks the law of God, that one is absorbed in the person of Jesus Christ. You are not with Christ 
As though he is somewhere in the heavens and he writes his name on you and now it's okay, you've got the stamp on you. But no, 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 no. You are in Christ. And so here's what happens. Because you are in Christ, when Satan or someone else goes to God and says, God, I don't know what to do with this one. They're sinning. They're gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Well, God immediately turns his attention to you, but he can't find you. He's looking, but where's the one you're talking about? Over there. And God searches. He looks, he finds. And then what he sees is he sees Christ. Because in order to find you, he has to see Christ. Because you are where? In Christ Jesus. You see? And when the father sees Christ, the wrath that perhaps would have been on his face because of the thing you're being accused of, that crooked look turns into a smile as he looks at his son in whom he is well pleased. And he says, oh, I love you, my son. Because Jesus paid the price for our sins. And it isn't that we religiously link ourselves to him and we say, yep, arm in arm, me and Jesus, we're, we're buddies. No, 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 no. You are not a friend. You are in. Well, you are a friend because you're in. But you are in Christ Jesus. And that brings Paul to say, for in Christ Jesus, if you are in Christ, then circumcision, it means nothing. It doesn't help you. You've got the best position in standing that you can possibly have because you are in Christ. And then he also says, nor does uncircumcision. That means nothing either. But what does bring merit to who you are before God, he says, is a new creature. What's the new creature? It's you dead, crucified with Christ, nevertheless alive. Yet the life that you're living in the flesh You're living by faith in the Son of God. You're in Christ, you see. That's the new creature. And the new nature begins to form within us. God begins to transform us, and we become like Christ because we're in Christ, you see. So when God looks at you and sees Christ, he's pleased. And so the summary of Paul's application that he brings to them is that this is what validates you before a holy God. Not your religious duties, your circumcision, or your performance, or if you got up today and prayed, or if you have read your Bible every day this week, or if you haven't read it in a week. Your righteous standing before God lies in the fact that you are in Christ. And because you are in Christ, God is well pleased with you. He looks at you with perfect love, perfect favor, absolute blessing. Because you are in Jesus Christ. Now finally, Paul summarizes the impartation of these truths. Or the implementation of these truths, if you would. Now we've talked already about the information. We've talked about the application. And you say, well, what more is there than information and application? Isn't that what we're doing? Listen, most Christians, yes, They say, well, I understand the scripture and I know how to apply it. And they take their knowledge of the word and their knowledge of how to apply it and they leave thinking that because they know what it says that that automatically makes them doers or possessors of what it says. Not so. See, you can understand a locomotive. 
you know, a steam engine. They don't really use those anymore. But you could see one and you could say, you know, I know exactly how that works. Come on, let me show you. And you could give someone, you know, a locomotive study. And you could take them in and you could say, look, this is the steam coal stove here. And the pressure builds up. And then the water. And then it, that what happens is that the pressure builds up so much that, you know, it starts to turn these, these massive turbines. And the wheels go. And this thing starts moving down the track, you know. And you can know everything there is to know about that locomotive. You can understand how it works, what you have to do to make it work, all of it. But listen. Unless you do it, the train is not moving. You understand? You can know everything that there. You could walk away from this Galatians study, and you could say, "Man, I never understood Galatians." You probably won't say that, but you'll say, "I never understood Galatians like I did." And you could know it. You could share it. You could. But listen, it's not going to move your life one bit unless you take the truth that's been told. And you implement it in your life. You begin to walk in exactly what it is. And that's where Paul goes with this in verse 16. He says, and as many as walk according to this rule. Pause right there. He doesn't say as many as know the things that I've shared. As many as share this with others. As many as agree with the things that I've said. He says, no, as many as walk according to this rule. The implementation of this. What does the embracing of this message and the living of it, the walking that Paul is speaking of, what does that produce within my life? Well, he tells us, he says, peace be on them and mercy and upon the Israel of God. Peace and mercy upon the Israel of God. Now, I'll come back, but what does he mean by Israel of God? I mean, Paul, nowhere else in the New Testament do you say that, but you say it here. And some have mistakenly taken this verse, this phrase that Paul used, to say that there is replacement theology. That Israel that was in the Old Testament no longer exists. They are disbanded, abandoned by God, and that the church is the new Israel. Listen, not so. God said to the prophet Jeremiah, and he says, as long as the sun rises and the sun sets, I will never forsake my people, Israel. Same God. He doesn't change. God's not through with the Jew. That's clear and consistent. Old Testament, Romans 9, 10, and 11, all of how God is not through with the Jewish people. So, it's not replacement theology. Others have suggested that Paul uses this phrase not to say that the church is the new Israel, but simply to say, well, what does Israel mean? Israel means governed by God. Well, those that are in Christ, what are we? We're governed by God. We've laid down the self-life. We've yielded the reins. We are in Christ. So therefore, we, in the spiritual sense, are Israel because we also are governed by God. I have no problem with that. But I think that the Holy Ghost strategically put this word in here for a very specific reason. When God made his promise to Abraham, way back in Genesis chapter 15, he said in chapter 15, verse 13, he said, Your people are going to be slaves in a land that is not theirs for 400 years. 
your people, the nation that I'm going to establish under you, they're going to be slaves in a nation that's not theirs for 400 years. And Abraham gives birth to his son, Isaac. Isaac, in turn, gives birth to Jacob, the heir of the promise. And then Jacob has the 12 sons that would become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Among them, Joseph, the second to youngest, who, hated by his older brothers, is sold as a slave to the Egyptian slave traders. And he's brought down to Egypt where he is raised up in the house of Potiphar. And Joseph, you know the story, he becomes the prime minister of the whole nation of Egypt. He essentially saves the world and becomes for us a picture of Christ. The one who was forsaken by his brothers and yet turned out to be the savior of the world. This man Joseph. And just as God spoke to Abraham, the whole family was brought down to Egypt. Seventy of them in number. And they had it pretty good when they got to Egypt. They dwelt in the land of Goshen. It was the fatness of the land. They were highly esteemed and respected because they were related to Joseph, the one who had saved the whole world. And it was a good life for infant Israel there down in Egypt as God began to multiply them and to grow them and groom them as a nation. But in the opening verses of Exodus, it tells us that in the process of time, Pharaoh died and a new Pharaoh rose up who knew not Joseph. And as the people of Israel, the Israel of God, if you would, as they began to grow and they became more organized and there was stability and multiplication amongst their numbers, Pharaoh began to get nervous. Well, what if they uprise against us? What if they overtake us? They're they're separate. They're not assimilating with us. What if they take over our land? We've got to do something about it. And so Pharaoh, he decides we'll make them slaves. We'll make them servants. And Israel became slaves just as God spoke to Abraham and said, in the land of Egypt, responsible for building the monuments of Egypt, the treasure cities, the tombs of the pharaohs, perhaps even the pyramids, all done by these slaves, these Israelites. But no matter what they did, the Israelite people just would continue to blossom and grow as they were there down in Egypt. And the larger they got, the stronger the affliction came from Pharaoh and from the Egyptians until a point that the people of God began to cry out to God because of the affliction that they were in. And so God raised up the man Moses. And you know the story how Moses brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Miraculously, God opened up the Red Sea and his three million person nation walked through leaving exiting exodus you know through the red sea like it's on dry ground and then they watched as god closed the water again on top of pharaoh and his army they were miraculously delivered and set free from the bondage and the affliction of their slavery in egypt And at the same time that they were introduced to the power of the Most High God, they experienced His salvation, they experienced deliverance from their affliction, and they responded with praise and rejoicing. You read the story of how on the other side, Miriam took her timbrel and began to rejoice, and the people rejoiced, and they exalted the power of this God, this mysterious God that had just reached into their lives and saved them from this incredible affliction. But they left from the 
other side of that stream where they were so elated, so full of joy. And they came to the base of Mount Sinai. And when they came near this, this mountain that was so mysterious, so spiritual, so, so powerful, they, they realized they were in the presence of God. The presence of God was thick upon Mount Sinai. The power of God was seen and experienced as they watched the flaming top of the mountain and felt the presence. They heard the word of God as he spoke the Ten Commandments to the people. And the people that experienced, the Israel of God that had experienced God's salvation and deliverance, that tasted of his goodness, now came into a new knowledge of his holiness. They received his law. They heard what this holy God demanded. And with the best of intentions, the people responded, whatever God says, we're going to do it. So in love, so overjoyed with what he had done for them, they said, whatever he says, we're going to do it. But within 40 days, they failed miserably. Moses went up on the mountain to receive the written word of God, and down below, the people made a golden calf. It says that they sat down to eat and to drink and they rose up to play. Paul tells us in the New Testament that they were having some type of sexual party there when Moses came down the mountain. And within 40 days of having this incredible presentation of the holiness and the power of God, the people began to discover that although they had been removed from Egypt, Egypt had not really been removed from them. They were still given to its ways. They left Egypt with joy, but they left Sinai with fear. The awesomeness of God. Now you say, why are you telling it? Don't worry, we're going somewhere. I understand you're going, I don't understand where we are right now. Don't worry, we're coming back. But from there, they went to Kadesh Barnea. An 11-day journey by foot. A most interesting place. Situated about 50 miles inland from the southeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. It's one of the only places you can be where you can look on one side and see into Egypt. And then look on the other side and see into Canaan. Or for you Bible students, the promised land. The land that God had promised that he was going to give to his people. The land of destiny. It was a place where the people could look back into where they had come from. Perhaps they could smell the aromas of Egypt. Visions of what it was like there. Memories of the affliction, the bondage. All of that was real to them on the one side. But they would look this way and they would see into where they were headed. Into this promised land. And it was there that they first tasted the fruit of that land. The goodness of that land. The spies went in and when they came back, they brought a bundle of grapes that took two men to carry. It was on a stick between two men's shoulders. So great was this bundle of grapes. Pomegranates the size of bowling balls. They said it's a land that's filled with milk and honey. And they saw, they tasted the fruit of that good land wherein they were going. At the same time, they could still see the place that they had come from. And it was at Kadesh Barnea that the Israel of God, this people that God had formed and called unto himself, stood at the gateway of their destiny. The whole of their future lied before them, and God spoke, and he said, Now, go in and take 
land, for I have given it to you. I've prepared it for you. Now go in and take it. It's the land of destiny. But instead of going in to take the land, the Bible tells us they did two things. First of all, they responded with fear and unbelief. That even though God had made a promise to Abraham saying, I'm giving you this land from Dan to Beersheba, from the Mediterranean Sea and the river of Egypt to the Euphrates, this is your land, it's a promise I'm making to you. Though God had delivered his people miraculously from the land of Egypt, opening up the Red Sea, closing it upon their enemies. And though God said to them, now go in and take the land. Yet because of their fear of the unknown, they failed to go in and to possess the land. They believed in the God of the past, the God who saved them, the God who delivered them, but they did not believe in the God of the present. The God of every moment. They were not willing to trust him with their very lives. And the second thing that it tells us that they did there is that they yearned in their hearts to go back to Egypt. It tells us that they longed for the sensual pleasures that they experienced while there. Don't you remember the cucumbers, the melons, the onions, mm. the leeks? Mm. Yeah, I can remember. It was good that we had there. They longed for the familiar sights, the familiar surroundings. But they forgot the anguish of soul. They forgot the bondage that they were in. And the result of these two things, their fearful unbelief and their longing for Egypt, rather than going in to possess the richness of what God had prepared, they were resigned to spend their lives wandering in the Arabian wilderness. Their lives were suspended in the chasm between Egypt and the promised land. And for 40 years, God's people wandered in the wilderness, not going back to Egypt but also not moving forward into the land of their destiny. And it wasn't until 40 years later when the whole generation died that not Moses, but Joshua brought the next generation of God's people into the land to fulfill his promise and his word. You say, okay, thank you very much for that history lesson, but what does that have to do with Galatians chapter 6, verse 16? Everything. Why? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul is talking to the Corinthians about the history of Israel, the very thing I just shared with you. And in verse 11, he said, Now, all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. And what Paul is saying to them and saying to us is that the same path that Israel followed historically, every New Testament Christian follows spiritually. How's that? What do you mean? First of all, we were all slaves in Egypt. Every single one of us was in bondage. By the way, Egypt, for you that study the Bible, is a picture always of the world. Whenever you read of Egypt, it's a spiritual picture of the world that we live in. The sensual pleasures, the bondage that they were in, the affliction of soul. And all of us understand what that was like. We remember when we were in bondage in the world. 
We were given to sensual pleasures and the pursuits of the world. John calls it the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Everything that's in the world, the sensations and the pleasures of it. We're all familiar with the bondage of the world systems and its ways. You know, I remember, you know, as a younger man hearing Pink Floyd, Roger Waters, were, that we're all just another brick in the wall. And I, and I could resonate with that even as an unsaved man because I could see it. I could understand that this world, there's a system here. I, I think the most depressing day of my life was, was the first day I went to college and they basically said, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, I don't know. And they opened up a thing and they said, well, pick something. And I was like, really? It's in here? You know, I was, I was really hoping it would be better than that. And they're like, no, just pick something, you know. Because why? Because there's a system and that's it. In this world, you're just another brick in the wall, another number. Come on, move right through. There's no hope. There's no purpose. You're just part of the system. And we understand that bondage. We all experience the anguish of soul in the world, laying your head on the pillow at night and not knowing, why was I created? What was I made for? Where am I going? What is the sense of all of this? I know that I'm more than just a fortuitous concurrence of accidental circumstance. What's going on? Why? Who am I? Where is God? Is there a God? And that despondency of not knowing and being lost and wondering what would ever come. We've all been there. But just as with them in their slavery in Egypt, they applied the blood to the doorpost and death passed over them. And then God miraculously took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, bringing them through the Red Sea. So too God also, he applied the blood of Christ to yours and my heart. At the moment we received him and reached out, he took us by the hand and he miraculously delivered us from the power of Egypt. We were baptized, if you would, brought through the sea and set safely with our feet on the other side as new creations in Christ. We rejoiced. There's a God. His word is real. It's alive. It speaks. His truth It's magnified. His hope is real. His his kingdom, his nature, his person, his goodness, his blessing, his promises. And it it overwhelms us. As we, like Miriam, grab the timbrel and we rejoice. But from there, we walk with him a little while. And we, like them, we come to the base of Mount Sinai. Where a new thought, a new expression of God's holiness is revealed to us. We obtain a new understanding of his requirements and his righteousness. And with all good intentions, we all do it. We say, God, whatever you say, I'm going to do it. You want me to be holy? I'm going to be holy. You want me to abstain? I'm going to abstain. You want me to press in? I'm going to press in. God, I am yours. But just like the children of Israel, we realize very quickly that we were miraculously delivered from the world. But there yet remains a whole lot of the world yet still in us. And as we begin to fall under the weight of our own sin, that initial joy somewhat fades as we realize that we don't just, we just don't quite measure up to what it is that God desires. But listen, Sinai is not the end. Because from there, every Christian, every soul that's been born of God moves again and we come to Kadesh Barnea. The gateway of destiny, or if you would, the valley of decision. And as we stand in that place, we can look back 
into Egypt, where we once were, where we came from. We can remember the sensual pleasures and the things that we gave ourselves to, the things that were security to us, the things that were comfort, the things that were life, the things that we understand and are familiar with. It's all there on one side. And on the other side, we see into something that's yet obscure to us, something that we can't quite understand. This land of destiny, this promised land, this fullness of life, the Bible calls it. We're saved, we've been brought out of Egypt, but yet we, we look in and we even taste the fruit of it. We, we go to a conference or we go to a retreat and, and we realize, wow, there, there's more. There's a fullness, there's, there's a life, there's, there's a passion. Perhaps we meet someone, we come in contact with someone who's been there and we say, look at the fruit of the land. They just have such a joy. They, have, they just have a depth. They have a reality that I have yet to experience. And I can taste it. I can see that it's there, but it just seems like there's, there's something standing in the way. There's, there's, it's almost like there's a river that needs to be crossed for me to get from where I am into that land of destiny, that land of blessing. And as you stand there, And you're called to consider where you came from and where you go. The easier thing would always be to go back. That's what I'm familiar with. I'm more comfortable there. But I can't go back. The glory's gone. The Pharaoh's destroyed. The army, the glory of it. it, it, I I can't go back to it even though I, I feel it. But I'm afraid to go forward. What's it like in that land? What's it like if I give myself completely to God? What's life going to look like? What are people going to say? What are they going to think? And because of the fear of what's before and the despondency of what's behind, most Christians, unfortunately, they don't go back. They don't go forward. They just stop. And they stand in that chasm between where they came from and where they're going, and they just wander there. They believe in the God of the past who opened the Red Sea. They can see that he worked in their life and revealed himself to them, but they aren't sure they can trust him with their whole life, with everything that they are. And so rather than going in and possessing the Christian life in all of its fullness, they stay in the wilderness and they spend their lives wandering in the valley of decision. What does it look like when a Christian stops at Kadesh Barnea? Well, for the Old Testament Israel, it was marked by restlessness. Forty-one times in that 40 years that they were in that wilderness, it says that they removed or they departed or they went from that place. They were constantly restless. And so too, there are myriads of Christians that are restless in their Christian experience. They go from this church to that church to this minister to that minister to this truth to that truth and they're constantly restless in their Christian experience all the while knowing that they don't have the rest of God. It's not real within their lives. For them, the wilderness was marked by discontent. Over and over again it says that they murmured and complained. And so too there are Christians. When it's hot, it's too hot. In the summer, it's too hot. In the winter, it's too cold. If I have love, I want money. If I have money, I want love. And no matter what happens, it's just not enough. 
discontentedness, murmuring, all signs of the wilderness. The third thing that marked their experience was back yearning. That is that they were constantly looking back into Egypt, constantly reminiscing about how good they had it there in Egypt. Interesting, isn't it? They forgot the anguish of soul. They forgot the bondage that they were in. Somebody said one time, anyone who says that the old days are better than these has a really bad memory and a really good imagination. (laughs) And that's what marked their experience. Oh, that we were back in Egypt again. Oh, we used to sit by the flesh pot. We had as much meat as we could imagine. It was awesome back there. Back yearning. Always looking back with longing. And so too with Christians that wander. They've been rescued. They've been delivered. They've been saved from the world. But they're always trying to get as close as they can. Well, am I allowed to have one beer? Two beers? Am I allowed? I mean, PG-13, you know, can I... If it's PG-13 violence, but not PG-13 nudity, then can I watch it, you know? And, 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 you know, constantly seeing how close can I get back into that without actually going back to Egypt, back to the world. They're saved and delivered, but yet they yet long for the pleasures and passions of the world that they left. And they always want to know what's going on. Going through the grocery lines, you know, it's like, oh my goodness, Jennifer Aniston is what? You know, and, and they're just drawn to it. It's like, you know, I've been saved from it. The whole thing is burning. But it's, oh, I gotta know it, you know. It's wilderness. It's wandering. And the problem is, is that the worldly man is happier than the Christian who's wandering in the wilderness. Because he's never gotten a single taste of what you've got, and so therefore he's content. But you stand in the sorry position of having too much Christ to be happy in the world, and too much of the world to be happy in Christ. And so therefore your experience is wandering in misery, and that's the way you live your Christian life. Wandering. Now, those that will not resign themselves to a life of wandering in the wilderness... They depart from Kadesh Barnea and they stand at the brink of the Jordan River. They come to the very edge of that which separates them from where they are and where they're going. You say, what's the Jordan River? Well, the hymnists and the poets, they tell us that it's death. You know, I'm crossing over Jordan. And they make it this somber thing like, oh boy, you know, here we go, you know. The problem with that is that that would make the promised land heaven, and that doesn't work. Because there were battles to fight in the promised land. There's no battles to fight in heaven. There were giants in the promised land. There ain't no giants. Well, there might be giants in heaven, but they're spiritual giants. They're not trying to harm you, you know. So what is the Jordan River for the Israel of God? Though it isn't death, according to the poets and the hymnists, they weren't too far off. It's not the death of the body physically. But the crossing of the Jordan River represents the embracing of the cross of Christ as Paul described it in verse 14. It's the death of the self-life and the yielding of all to Jesus. When the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River, 
led by Joshua, and they were brought into their destiny, the first thing that they were told to do is to erect a monument on the inside of the Jordan River to take 12 stones and to there erect an eternal memorial that would always be for them a memory of what took place there. Now, when a Christian crosses the Jordan, the same thing happens. What you are doing, essentially, is that you are putting the cross of Christ between yourself and your old life. That every time you would even think to look back to whatever was in the past, all you can see there is the cross. That monument, that Gilgal is built up there in that place where you crossed the Jordan River, where you died to your old life and to your old man, and you yielded all to Christ. You know what's interesting to me is that after the children of Israel crossed into the promised land, never once did they again say, oh, that we could go back to Egypt. Never. In, in the wilderness, every day. Oh, we had it so good there, it was great. But once they came in, never again did they ever look back. There was nothing there for them afterwards because what they had was so much greater. You say, okay, the Jordan, it represents the cross, the death of the self-life. Well, what is the land? What does it mean to come into this promised land, this land of destiny? Is it an experience? Is it like a light switch blessing that God's going to just flip on and, 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 and everything's going to kind of change in my life and I'm going to wake up one day and be Bobby or something, you know, I'll, I'll be happy. And, you know, is that what's going to happen in my life when I, when I do this? No, 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 listen. It's not an experience. It's not some supernatural thing that God does. Listen, do you know what the land is? The land is Christ. The land is Jesus. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, the writer of Hebrews describing this very thing, he says this, he says that we are made partakers of Christ. The land is Christ. Once they entered into, I know it's long, I know it's late, please be patient with me. (laughs) You're like, please get it over with. Listen, once they came into the land, the glory of the land became theirs Because they were in it. Do you understand? They possessed the land and the land possessed them. The mountains, the valleys, the milk and the honey, the fruit, the treasures, the riches, everything that was that land became theirs because they were in it. Do you understand? It was theirs. So too, when a man, when a woman passes through the Jordan, spiritually, takes up the cross, says, I'm yielding all to you. My life is no longer mine. It is yours, not I, but Christ. I surrender all. When a person embraces Christ in that way and they pass through the Jordan River and they are placed in Christ, they are his. They're in him. They're not with him. They're not alongside of him. They don't have access to him. They are in him. And where is Christ? He's at the right hand of the Father which is with God. What does that mean? It means this. Listen. And this is what you've got to hear. This is the crux. This is what it's all about. Listen. The mountains of his strength are yours. It's not that you have access to them. They are yours. His strength is yours. The valleys of his humility are yours. The fountains of his joy are yours. The treasuries and the riches of who he is is yours. 
The weight of his authority is yours. The quality of his eternal life is yours. The favor of God that was upon him is yours. Sometimes I read the Psalms, you know, and you probably do this too, and and, and I'll get really excited about a particular promise or something that's being said, but then I'll realize that it's speaking of Christ and I'll get disappointed. You know, it's like one of those things that talk about how I'm going to make all your enemies your footstool. And then you realize, wait a minute, that was speaking of Jesus. Matthew said that that it might be fulfilled, what the psalmist said. And then you go, oh man, oh well. No, 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 listen. You're in him. That means that everything that's shared, the whole, the volume of the book is yours. Do you understand? Do you understand what you have in Christ as being one that's in Christ Jesus? This is what Paul was talking about in in Galatians 2.20 when he talks about being in Christ. Because Christ lives in me and I am in Christ, all that he is is mine and all that he has is mine. And this is what Paul is telling the Galatians to do as he concludes. Again, in verse 16, he says, as many as walk according to this rule. And that is this, to accept what Christ has done for you, to accept it, to understand that it's not up to you to perform it, to be good enough, to be holy enough, to be spiritual enough. He's done it for you. Accept it. And then embrace what it is that he's giving to you. Everything that he is, is yours. You need strength? It's yours. Story is told of a man named George MacDonald who wanted to teach his family trust and honor. And so what he would do is he would set aside a portion of the family's money and he would always leave a certain amount upon the mantle in the middle of the house. And any time anyone had need of it, they could come and they could just take whatever it is that they needed, including the, the wife and the children. If the wife needed some, she would take it. If the children needed some, they would take it. And he was doing that to, to teach them something. But listen, it's the same thing that we have in Christ. All that he has is ours. What do you need? Do you need strength? It's yours. What do you need? A soft tongue turns away wrath. A soft answer. I need your humility. It's yours. Lord, I need provision. Do you see we're choking here? It's yours. Lord, my spirit is low. I'm downcast. Why is it downcast? You need his joy. It's yours. Do you understand? As many as walk according to this rule. Stop saying, well, when I cross the next hurdle, or when I make the next milestone, or come around the next corner, then God's going to bless me. No, no, no. You are blessed. You're in Christ Jesus. Embrace what he's giving to you, and then live as though it's done. Live your life according to it's done. As we close, and oh, man, I'm going to beat myself up for a week for this. Why am I taking the time to go through all of this, to to take you through that history and to lay that out like that so detailed? Two reasons and then we're done. Number one is because many of you are still wandering. You're restless. You're frustrated in your Christian experience. You're unhappy. You're yearning for Egypt, thinking constantly about the world, struggling with it. You're afraid to yield yourself completely to Christ because of the uncertainty of what it means. Listen, he is life. John says, that which was from the beginning, 
which we have handled, which we have seen, which we have looked upon, which we have examined of the word of life. He says, that declare we unto you that you might have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. There is nothing else but Jesus. Some of you are wandering because you're waiting for some feeling. You're waiting for some emotion. You're waiting for something to happen. You ever think when the people crossed the Jordan River, you know, the Israel of God in the Old Testament, they went from Jordan to Canaan. Do you think they felt any different when they got in? Do you think the person that had a cold went in and didn't have a cold when they got there? The person that was having a bad day on one side, do you think the bad day just went away when they went to the other side? Nothing changed in their you know, whatever it was, it was just a matter of they were here and now they're here. And there's many Christians that maybe you've even crossed Jordan and you refuse to believe it. No, no, I'm just waiting for God to do something magnificent, glorious. You're in. Partake, enjoy. God wants you to enjoy your salvation. The second reason I'm going through this is because next week as we cross into Ephesians, We're going to begin to explore exactly what it is that we have in Christ. The treasures and the riches of who he is and what is ours because we are in him. And this is the point. Listen carefully. How well you grasp Galatians. Not intellectually, but in your walk practically. How well you grasp Galatians is going to directly correspond with how much you experience Ephesians. Do you understand? It's so important. Galatians tells us how to receive. Ephesians tells us the riches that we have in Christ Jesus. Let's stand and pray together. Father, we just thank you tonight for your word. How we pray, Lord, that we would understand the heartbeat of what it is that you are seeking to communicate. And I ask, Father, for anyone here that has yet to embrace you fully, even to just claim and and believe by faith that we're in you, that the Father is pleased because we're in you, that the promise is yes and amen because we're in you, That the hope is alive and it's real because we're in you. And that whatever we need is ours. I just pray that you would impart that now. I pray for those tonight that may doubt their salvation. That under the weight of their sin and the heaviness of Sinai they fall in. And they continually fear and stand in doubt of your favor and doubt of your love. I pray that tonight by the power of your spirit, you would lift away that burden and that you would show them the glory of your salvation. And I pray, Father, that you would pour out a blessing upon each one of us. That you would open new doors of opportunity, new doors of experience. That the truth of this word would resonate within our hearts and minds. That our Christian experience wouldn't be shallow. That it wouldn't be limited to Sunday or Wednesday or to religious times. But that we would begin to learn to hear your voice. That we would sense your leading. 
that we would sense your blessing and see it actually taking place in front of us. That the doors would fling wide open. That our families would continue and, and, and begin more so to blossom and grow. And that our lives would begin to produce abundant spiritual fruit. I ask, Father, that you would do these things in us, not according to our righteousness, but according to the promise that you give and the favor that is ours because we're in Christ. We give thanks to you tonight, Lord, for such a great privilege. May we walk worthy of that vocation wherewith we've been called. To as many as received him, to them gave he power to be called the sons of God. May that truth just fill us. Thank you, Father, for this time tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.